This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Two Chai Day, One Widow's Story About Living Beyond Grief in the Author, Irene McGoldrick, and Irene joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Irene. Hello. Well, this is a, as someone said, a raw, non-sentimental voice that is both believable and authentic, and also a ray of hope with grief. And I'm sure we've dealt with grief, but every journey is individual, and this is your journey with your husband, I may say, because of his journals. So this is very different, and uh, let me read what you've written, kind of set the stage for our discussion. You say, Two Chai Day tells the story of Irene and Bob, an ordinary couple, and how they manage Bob's terminal cancer with their young family. Irene writes with genuine honesty about living beyond Bob's death and how she managed to find humor and hope in the midst of life's greatest tragedy. Well... Obviously, our heart goes out to you and your and your children about Bob's death, but at the same time, a lot to remember and a, a lot to celebrate. And I guess that's is that one of the reasons you you published the book. It's one of the we- reasons, certainly. Um, you know, it's definitely a gift that we had found each other to begin with, and you know, to have the children um, and to have them have this legacy written down was very important to me. But also, you need to find hope in all this, don't you? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that you have to choose hope with everything, everything that might happen to you in life, actually. I mean, I, I do think it is a choice, and, you know, you can either let circumstances, or circumstances do shape you, and you can decide how you want them to shape you. And I think to um, find hope is the greatest gift you can get from a circumstance, really. Now, did you know he was keeping a journal? Yes, yes. He had been a journaler. Bob had been a journaler since he was in high school. So he kept a journal throughout our entire relationship. And um, then, you know, of course, continued it on after his diagnosis. So, yes, I was aware. I hadn't... um, I had only read a little bit uh, prior to his death, and then after he um, died, maybe about a year, year and a half later, I um, started to sift through those a little bit. How old were you when this happened? I was 36 when he died. And how old were your children? My children, my oldest was three and a half, and my youngest was just about to turn five months. Five months. So was this very unexpected, his death? Well, it wasn't unexpected in the sense of it wasn't an accident. Um, He did have cancer, and it was terminal. We knew he was dying in the end. I think that whenever it happens, no matter what the circumstances are, it still seems unexpected somehow, even though you are anticipating it and even, to a certain extent, 
wishing for it because of all the pain and the ugliness of the end. But I think it's still the finality of death, I think, is still shocking. Yes, I think we would all agree with that. It it hurts no matter if you understand and are happy that someone isn't suffering anymore. Right. Exactly. I, I think sudden death is definitely a different beast than an expected, you know, kind of death as far as with cancer, but I still found the end to be shocking and, and unexpected. Certainly. So, Certainly, and of course, life goes on, and you have to deal with the grief. You do. You can't skirt around it. I, I, I feel that a lot of people try to, um, Particularly, I think in America, we don't do such a great job with grieving, grieving openly and grieving honestly. I think people do try and skirt around it, just proceed um, and move on, so to speak. And I feel that it's best to take it head on and sort of embrace it, feel all the ugliness, and that's really the only way you can purge it in the end in a healthy way, I feel. So here we have a young mother with two young children. How did you help your children through this? Well, that's interesting. That has developed over time because they were so young when their dad died. And I feel, obviously, the five-month-old had no idea of what was going on, and the three-and-a-half-year-old had a very, you know, three-and-a-half-year-old, circumstances. Yeah, dad is you know, away, they, but it's hard to understand that he's not coming home. Ex- exactly. Exactly. And I, I think that that has, that still goes on as they develop and have further understanding of, of what this event means in their life and what it has meant and what it will mean in the future. But I think at the time, I felt so sad for them that they would never know their dad, that they wouldn't remember him. I feel like I probably took on like three times the grief, you know, so I was sort of grieving for them in what they didn't even really know that they had lost. And I think the best thing I could do for them was just to be very honest. I was not the type of person that felt like I didn't want them to see me cry I was not that way at all. Um, I felt like that would not be helpful to them, especially the older one. If he was feeling sad, but he saw his mom sort of proceeding and feeling fine, then I felt like that would be more confusing to him. And we have certainly been very open and honest with questions that come up, bringing up his name, um, you know, pictures, everything. We're just as honest and genuine as we can be about the situation. What did you go through? What kind of a process did you go through to decide to use, as you say, his uncensored thoughts, your late husband's personal journal? So it wasn't, it, it, you had to wrestle with this. I really did. I did have to wrestle with it, especially because it had been a, a little bit of a problem in our relationship, the, the journals. I had been sort of threatened by them, particularly in the beginning. 
um, not being a journaler myself, I think it took me some time to understand the purpose of journaling. And I, I sort of felt threatened by them, you know, wondering why he couldn't share these thoughts with me that he was writing down. So when the time came, that's actually one of my greatest regrets that I had not asked him if I could look at the journals after he died. Um, in the end, though, I, I came to the conclusion that he did know that he was dying and he did leave the journals behind. And I just felt that that was a message that his message in the journal was meant for more than just him. And I felt in the end that if it could help one other person, then that was worth it. And I feel like he would have agreed with that as well. Well, it seems all of us have friends, family that are dying or, or who have died of cancer. I, just this last year, I've had two close friends die of cancer. It seems to be more, more and more uh, active in, in uh, you know, all around us. So it's very important to have someone else help us to kind of walk through that. And, and so we're not tied to you emotionally or to your husband, or your children, but this is part of your whole purpose, isn't it? It is. I was, you know, part of the purpose in writing the book was to definitely help other people through a journey that we will all experience at some time. I'm, not necessarily with cancer, but, you know, everyone's going to lose somebody they love at one point or another. And I think to read somebody else's experience and how they dealt with it, not so much as a self-help book, you know, with bullet points of what to do, but just reading somebody else's experience you can relate it to your own and, you know, learn through that process and feel less alone in, in what you're experiencing. I think that's what I've heard the most from not only other widows, but other people in general that have read the book and had losses of their own, just that they felt a little less crazy in what they were thinking. Because you can be crazy, because grief can make you. I know you, you point out a scene in your book where you're yelling at a guy at the co-op store, and, yeah. you know, you're just, you're, you're, you're un, well, you're just in your uncontrollable state, I guess, at that moment. Yes, that is a moment that definitely stands out in the book. Many people will bring that up, and I think it is an example of the fact that you you are not in your right mind all the time. You're acting out in ways that you normally wouldn't under normal circumstances. And and I think understanding that and seeing that in somebody else makes you feel a little bit less crazy if that's how you're feeling yourself. And that it's not that unusual to to have these thoughts and feelings when you are going through a grieving process. Now, you talk about hearing a voice. Yes. Yes. The voice. The voice. I think the voice of my subconscious um, or my higher self or, you know, I think people can interpret the voice in different ways. I think, I think when I was first started hearing it, I didn't really know what it was, and I didn't 
maybe even acknowledge what it could have been until much later on after he had died and um, that it could have been, you know, sort of what some people might call God, what other people might call their higher selves, just or a subconscious feeling that you get intuition about circumstances that are going to happen or are happening at the time. Tell us about your relationship with your sister, Anne, and how she helped you through all of this. Well, the relationship with Anne is really probably one of the greatest silver linings in in what did happen. And we're 11 years apart and didn't have a lot in common, definitely, um, you know, through our 20s. And, and I think that what happened was that we were able to come together and um, bond as sisters in a way that wouldn't have happened unless we did have these circumstances. She was in a situation where she could come and help me. She is a very natural at helping, kind of taking over a situation in a not oppressive way, sort of taking care of you. She's very nurturing. And that is something that has been sustained until this day, we are um, much closer than we were before. We will talk on the phone. We don't live close together. You know, she, she lives in a different state. and We're still much closer than we were. We'll talk on the phone at least weekly and much more involved with each other. And that was really a gift that came out of this circumstance. And then there's your son, Henry. Yes, Henry. Henry's a little... A little star in the book, I think, just because of his his personality and the age that he was at during the whole circumstance. He's a very unique individual, and he's been through a lot. And I think, to a certain extent, he's he was born as an old soul. And I think what he has, um, you know, witnessed and experienced has definitely added to that. But he is. Definitely wise behind his ears, I believe. How does your current husband, your second husband, how mm-hmm. has he dealt with the publishing of this book, which is not about him? No, it's not about him. And we refer to him as my live husband, as opposed to my dead husband. Um, he he has handled this extremely well, I think, it, it confuses people, actually, which I find interesting, but he is really my greatest supporter and biggest fan with all of this. He was very supportive. I I quit my job to write this book. He was very supportive of that. He's very supportive of, you know, Bob being still, you know, sort of present in our house as far as, and I don't mean that in like some kind of ghost way. I just mean that you know, he brings up his name as naturally as the boys do, as naturally as his kids do. You know, pictures being around that are still with Bob and myself. He's very, very supportive and understanding of it and not not threatened. I think that's really a strength in our relationship. And I think that we have just been very honest with each other about the situation. And, um, you know, I think that he understands that... He is my first choice for this life I'm in now, and not to think of himself as sort of a second choice, because I think that was sort of a struggle in the beginning 
you know, realizing that, well, gosh, you know, you'd rather be with this other person, and my my response being that, well, I would have rather that didn't happen, obviously, but we can't speak in those terms because that's just not the situation, and so we need to think of this as just, you know, this is just plan B, and he is my first choice for plan B. The title of the book, Two Chai Day, One Widow's Story About Living Beyond Grief. And the author is Irene McGoldrick. And Irene, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it anywhere books are available, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iUniverse.com, or, um, you know, your local bookstore. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story with us, Irene, on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today, 903-617-6899, 903-617-6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning RX can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning RX, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Reluctant Assassin, and the author is C.E. Wilcox, and Chuck joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chuck. Hi, Steve. Nice to talk with you. We're going to look at this fascinating story, this story of intrigue and... A bit of a problem for some returning veterans. Of course, this is a real extreme example, uh, going from Marine Sniper to Hitman. But at the same time, it could be real. So this will be a fascinating uh, story. I want to read what you have written about a reluctant assassin. You say, it's a story of a highly trained and experienced Marine Sniper who is honorably discharged 
At home, he finds his wife has divorced him and taken sole custody of their children, home, and business they had built together. Unable to find work, he falls into a deep depression. But one night, a dream provides a seemingly solution to his problem. Use the skills he was trained for as a Marine. This story takes the reader through increasing dangerous situation as Oscar follows his chosen life as a hitman. Well, what prompted this storyline, Chuck? Well, I think it was something in my mind for a period of time. Um, when I first retired, I did a lot of reading, uh, reading novels and so forth that I didn't have the opportunity to do when I was, when I was working because most of my work revolved around technical issues. So, um, but in reading other authors' work, it just gave me the idea that perhaps I could write something. And I started tossing around ideas, and one of the ideas I had was about this marine hitman. And that's the one I decided to pursue one day when I sat down and started to write. Well, a lot of veterans come home, and of course their skills are in very focused on the military and often don't translate to to civilian life. In fact, you've done some research that is very, very depressing to to those of us who feel so much for the veteran. It's very frustrating to see so many who go unemployed, right? That's correct. A large, a large percentage of uh, the veterans, returning veterans in the age group of around 19 to the mid-20s, when they're discharged, just simply can't find work. And it's almost 20%. 21, 22% of them, they cannot find work. And as a result of that, they fall into uh, depressions and uh, get on drugs and, and uh, end up as homeless. It's just a very sad situation. Well, we're going to learn more about Sergeant Oscar Wilton. Tell us about Sergeant Wilton. Is this... Uh, to some degree, is this about you, at least some of the uh, characteristics of the, uh, the hero of our book, or the anti-hero, as you call him? <laughs> An anti-hero. I, no, I, other than being a Marine and some of the exposure that I had when I was in the Marine Corps, and I also had a friend who was in, uh, uh, very, in the uh, highly skilled uh, portion of the Marine Corps called Recon. And some of it's actually based on his life and his experience, more so than on mine. But he is a sniper and thinks at the beginning of the book that he's on his final mission as an assassin. That's correct. He's he's on a top-secret mission in Afghanistan. He's dropped actually in no man's land in Afghanistan with an assignment to uh, kill a terrorist who's uh, located in Pakistan, but he has to take his shot from Afghanistan so that he's not violating uh, the country's laws. And he carries out that mission. But the one drawback is <clears throat> during that mission, he has no uh, correspondence at all with his home. And he has no idea what's going on back home. And back home, his wife is in the process of, of divorcing him, of uh, taking control of their business that they built together, uh, sole custody of their, of their children, 
and sole ownership of the, of the home that they had together. So when he returns home, he actually has nothing to return to. Will you talk about his battle with morality, ethical choices, and personal loss as he faces the greatest challenge of his life? So he's got to regroup, and in the process, he learns that he does something, at least one thing, really well. He's an assassin. That, that's true. It's, he's, it's one thing he's been very, very successful at. And unfortunately, it's the only thing that he's trained as, as, as an assassin, as a rifleman. So when he is discharged, he has no other skills other than the ones that he had before he was uh, called up uh, on active duty. And those were in computer science. But in computer science, if you don't stay on top of it every single day, you fall behind. And as a result, um, companies, uh, they don't hire people that have been in the business for a number of years. They like to hire people right out of college because they have the most recent knowledge of what that uh, computers are capable of doing. So who does he go to work for? When he's out, he goes to work for himself. Oh, really? <laughs> he just hires tries, himself out to the... He hires himself out. I see. He, he tries to find work. He, he spends months and months and months and goes through his savings trying to find work and just is not successful at it, and because of that, he falls into a depression, and he starts going out during the day instead of looking for work. He starts hanging out in bars and meeting people in bars that are kind of the same situation he's in, and, and they kind of lean on each other, and they get into drugs and, and so forth, and he's, he's, his, life is, his life has just taken a, a spiral down, and uh, he realizes he has to do something about it, but he doesn't know what. So he has this dream one night about actually being a hitman and making a good salary at it, being paid well for it. So he wakes up in the morning and he thinks, well, why couldn't I do something like that? And he, he sits down, he draws together everything that he would need to know to carry out such an activity. And uh, he decides he could go ahead and do that. He purchases all the necessary equipment for it and uh, goes out and he finds a, uh, uh, someone to hire him. He keeps his uh, name. He's, he's completely unknown, top secret. Absolutely nobody knows what he's doing. Uh, the people that hire him have no idea who he is. And he maintains that because... If he doesn't tell anybody, there's going to be no leak, leak to anybody else about what he is doing. And so that's what he, he engages himself in. So these murders to the police, these hits, uh, are they, uh, he must be able to then stay completely invisible to the police? That's correct. He, one thing that he learns as a, uh, as a sniper in the Marine Corps, that you have to have three methods of escape to make sure that you're going to be able to get away. So each one of these hits that he plans, he makes sure that he has three different avenues of escape. Is Oscar a likable guy? I think he is. He's he's a nice personality. He's nice toward his family. He's a good family man in, in many respects. And uh, generally, he's, uh, 
he'd be a well-liked individual. So who is the main uh, group or person or police that are after him? I guess all of the above, especially I, he's, he turns his attention toward the mafia. Yeah, well, actually all the above, but in the end it, it largely becomes the mafia because his last hit, uh, he's hired by the mafia to carry out a hit against one of their own. And uh, and then they they try to eliminate him in the process unsuccessfully. <laughs> I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> exactly. No, I understand. Now, there's also a rescue of a young girl from certain death. Oh yes, when he's um, after he finishes mission in uh, Afghanistan, he's he's going back to the pickup zone where the helicopters are to pick him up. And as he's walking back, he pauses for a few minutes to take a drink of water, and he hears uh, like moaning or something from uh, off in the in the bushes. And he goes back to investigate, and he finds this uh, poor girl, uh, all beaten and bruised and in in very poor shape. And she tells him that um, because she had a child out of wedlock. Uh, in her village, she's a Muslim, that it's against her religion, and she was stoned and dumped in a desert uh, to die. So he picks her up, much against his his principles and against what the Marine Corps has taught him and his, his uh, scout sniper um, policies are. He picks her up and, and carries her all the way back and puts her on the plane and, and takes her back to uh, to the uh, base with him where she can get uh, medical care. Who would his friends be that uh, help him? He, he has close friends, but he while he's being a hitman, he kind of keeps himself distant because he doesn't want anybody to know what he is doing. And so he, he keeps everybody at a distance until he finishes up what, what he had intended to do, and he's able to, to uh, well, I don't want to get into what, what happens, but um, he just, everything is top secret. He's the only one that knows what he's doing, and he wants to keep it that way, and he knows if he has any close friends that he'll have to somehow disclose his frequent absences, so he always holds everybody kind of at abeyance for a period of time until he he works through uh, his hitman. Is there romance in the novel? Actually, there is. Um, initially, there's some romance in the beginning where he first meets his wife and marries her. There's a lot of romance there. But unfortunately, that goes bad um, later on in the uh, in the novel. But he does meet uh, a girl that uh, is trying to uh, burglarize his apartment, actually rob it, and he... <laughs> uh, catches her at night, and uh, and they end up uh, developing a, a relationship, which carries on through the book. It's a it's a good it's a a lot of it's sexual, and it's also uh, affection, uh, coupled with it. And she gets intertwined in with his his uh, hits. No, she's again. He keeps her in abeyance. Also, she has no idea what he's doing. Or where he goes, and she learn, learns not to pry because he doesn't pry into what she's doing. She's what 
they call a second story person. Uh, she steals from people by climbing in their windows at night and, and stealing things off their dressers and their wallets and so forth, which is not exactly an honorable profession. <laughs> so they're, they're kind of in cahoots together in a way so they, they can't disclose what they're doing individually, but they have still have a romantic uh, uh, rendezvous. Besides this very uh, highly dramatic uh, theme or plot with Oscar being a hitman, are there other themes or, you know, messages that you're trying to get through? Are there some, uh, some themes to help us better understand the plight of certain individuals in, in society? How, how are you treating that? Well, I, I do try at, at the first couple of chapters is um, to show what happens when veterans are discharged from military and they're not adequately trained to um, to step into some type of work when when they when they're discharged. And this uh, particular segment of our population, which goes we put in harm's way, and and they're in danger of their lives constantly, they lose friends, and then they come back, and they're almost completely forgotten. Society almost completely forgets them. The only ones presently that is paying any attention to them uh, is the Veterans Administration, and they've only recently started to recognize the problems with, with returning veterans. But one particular group of veterans, the Vietnam veterans, have been uh, just forgotten. They they came home. They were not greeted home as heroes. They were spit on when they came back. Uh, they were told they were baby killers. Everything. A lot of them went into deep depressions. Have become homeless people. A large percentage of the homeless on the streets of of large cities of this country are Vietnam veterans, and those veterans do not trust anyone. Uh, I know I've met some of them, I've talked to some of them, and they will not come in out of the cold. They, they don't trust the VA. They don't trust anything at all that the government says that they'll do for them. And they don't, in general, they don't trust society. They only trust the group of people, the friends that they've made, and their little homeless group. And that, that's what they rely on. It's just that, that little support group. And, uh, I did talk at length with one um, who was out trying to raise money for his organization. He told me that the organization had helped him. It was a, a former Vietnam veteran who had uh, finally able to bring himself back into the society, find work, and so he sets up this organization to try to help other Vietnam veterans that are homeless. And he explains to me the tremendous job that this organization is doing for the homeless. And uh, it's often you'll see these guys out in front of uh, uh, supermarkets and different places trying to raise money. But they're trying to really raise money for these VAs. They're not just not just begging. They're, they're doing a, a, a service, a service actually a service for the country by helping take care of these veterans. That are, that are homeless. So I, it's a very an issue that that really resonates with me. 
The title of the book, A Reluctant Assassin, and the author is C.E. Wilcox. Chuck, tell us how to get your book. All right, the book is available um, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. Many of the bookstores have it on the shelves in the stores. I've been in some Barnes and & Nobles, and, and they've had uh, the book on the shelf. Uh, uh, there's some other stores also that I've been in, I, off the top of my head, uh, Borders. I've been in Borders, and I found a book on the shelf in Borders. Or it's, I know it's available. Uh, you can purchase it uh, through Borders. Or you can buy as an e-book. I have a friend that called me that I went to school with. He was interested in the book. And he says, what I'm going to do is go on Amazon.com and download it as an e-book and, and read it. So it is available, uh, readily available, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders, uh, any other large chains of, chains of uh, bookstores. Chuck, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Hey, Steve, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Hatchet and the Plow, The Life and Times of Chief Corn Planter. And the author is Dr. Bill Betts, and Bill joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bill. Hello, Steve. Thank you. Well, you're going to take us back in history, the famous Seneca war chief corn planter. Uh, 
You say he was one of the most prominent and influential of all Native Americans during colonial times and throughout American history, and you expect your readers to emerge with a solid impression of Chief Cornplanter, the details of his life, his personality and character, and also that the reader will acquire a larger understanding of Native Americans, especially, of course, the Seneca people, and also a better understanding of the times in which Chief Cornplanter lived. Well, what's all the fascination, Bill, with Chief Cornplanter, and why did you publish the book? Well, it's a rather a long story, Steve, but I've grown up here in the western Pennsylvania, and I heard a lot about the Cornplanter Indians in growing up back in the 30s and 40s. And uh, then along about 1965, uh, there was quite a fuss raised because they were um, building the Kinzua Dam, and that meant uh, inundating the corn planter town, um, putting all of that underwater. And I got in on that a little bit. But uh, the big thing is when I, uh, shortly after I retired from teaching, I began to do some serious writing, and uh, I did a little book on the American Revolution following a uh, an artilleryman the whole way through the war. And in the course of that, I ran into Corn Planter, naturally, and I became curious about him, did some research, found that there was no biography of him at all, and um, I undertook to uh, do something about that. And uh, more was way back in 1995 or six, somewhere in there, that I actually began to do the research on Corn Planter. And, and the more I did, the more fascinated I got, and... Uh, I think we've finally, after a decade or so, emerged with a pretty good book. Now, he is what is called a half-breed? Well, uh, a lot of people don't like the term half-breed. They think it's maybe somewhat demeaning, but I use it because it's uh, a technical term for a a child who is born of uh, a mother who is of one race and a father of another. And uh, that's the case with Cornplanter. His father was a, a Dutch trader from Albany, New York, and um, became enamored of this uh, beautiful Indian woman in the, what is now the little town of Avon in western New York. That was called Gonawagas in those days, or Conawagas. And um, their child was uh, the uh, Seneca Indian boy whom we called Guy Antwaka, it's a very difficult name to pronounce or even to spell, but uh, he was born out of that union in 1750 or 52, somewhere in there. Now, he was allied with the British. Why was that? Well, in the years just before the revolution broke out, um, both the British and the uh, uh, American, the people we call the rebels, uh, were courting the Indians, uh, the British were wooing them a whole lot more aggressively than were the Americans, but the Americans were happy to see the Indians stay neutral, but the British wanted them, uh, wanted to use them, and so this went on ever since, you know, from 1774, probably, in, well, until 1777, when there was quite a, quite a meeting of all the Iroquois tribes up there in, uh, Oswego, New York, and uh, well, after a long debate, uh, the Senecas were finally persuaded to 
join with the uh, Mohawk and the other uh, tribes of the Iroquois Nation and ally themselves with the British. Corn Planter wanted to stay neutral. So did his uncle, uh, Gaiasuta. So did the famous war chief, uh, old, ta- uh, old, uh, old Smoke. And, but finally they were persuaded to uh, go go with uh, Chief um, uh, Joseph Brandt and the uh, other other Iroquois tribes. So the in- the Indians could see the future that they were going to lose their land. One way or the other, they were going to lose it. Well, actually, Steve, I would say yes to that uh, for some of the uh, uh, Native Americans. A corn planter definitely uh, could see the handwriting on the wall. And in the time after the war, uh, he became uh, involved in all of the treaty sessions, just about every one that had any uh, significance. And, uh, well, sort of leaned toward accommodation. He could he could see that the, uh, the life they had lived for so many centuries in this uh in this country uh, was doomed, and he was all for accommodation. And uh, the longer he lived, the more the more earnestly he worked to adopt the ways of the white man. Of course, we've got two very different lifestyles clashing here: the white man and the Indian. Yes, that's uh, certainly the case. And uh, corn planter uh, after the war uh, made. Uh, well, you can hardly believe this, but he traveled clear across the country from the Allegheny River to New York and Philadelphia to meet with President Washington. He made four trips like that, and uh, on the last three, he was successful in catching up with the president and appealed to him to uh, provide help to the Indians in the way of farming and uh, lumbering and that sort of thing, education especially, very keen about that. And Washington pretty much promised him uh, help in that way. Uh, if in return, Corn Planter would keep the Seneca Indians out of the war that was looming in the West with the Ohio Indians. And Corn Planter, Planter did pledge to do that and did, in fact, successfully keep the uh, Seneca Nation and all of the Iroquois out of that uh, horrible conflict, which uh, was taking place uh the West, the Indians in the Ohio Valley had drawn a line, no settlement beyond the Ohio River, and uh, they wiped out two armies that Washington sent to uh, put an end to the hostility, but the third one was uh, led by uh, General Anthony Wayne, and of course, it uh, he defeated the Indians at the very famous Battle of Fallen Timbers. But that was all... Um, a part of this picture which saw the Indians losing their land and steadily uh, moving into the way of the, of the white settlers. Now, Corn Planter, as you put it, was really weighed down with his responsibility for his people. He was a very sober, a very serious man. Well, it's interesting you should ask that because in all the research I've done, and I've been through thousands of documents and all over the place, I have found only three occasions on which he was moved to laughter. And uh, that wasn't a very, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't much laughter. He rarely smiled and almost never laughed. He was, as you say, a very, very sober man. 
he uh, three three different times in his uh, various speeches, he put it this way. He said, I am all by myself to bear the burden of my people. And as you noted, he just uh, felt weighed down by this responsibility. And uh, in fact, toward the end of his life, he became very melancholy, very depressed, disappointed in what he had been able to do, and uh, um, very, very bitter, really. And um, actually, the, the mementos that he had preserved uh, so affectionately through the years, he piled them all up and burned them. That's the sword that General Washington gave him, and a, a French flag, and a, an elegant hat that Governor Thomas Mifflin had given him. That was a rather symbolic act. He was simply separating himself from uh, from the whites. Now, of course, he was a savage warrior. Well, he had that reputation. He was a big man. He was a little over six feet. And uh, it happened that uh, uh, Mary Jemison, who was a famous captive of the Indians, uh, had married. Her second husband was a warrior by the name of Hyakatu. He was a large man, too, and he was ferociously, I mean, he was really uh, 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 brutal and uh, uh, treated prisoners cruelly. And because he was much confused with Corn Planter, uh, I think Corn Planter got um, a reputation for cruelty and ferocity that maybe he didn't altogether deserve. Uh, There's no evidence, really, of his torturing prisoners to death or anything of that kind. But he was the leader of the Indians who assaulted uh, Wyoming in northeastern Pennsylvania in 1778 uh, in July. And uh, after they had uh, captured the forts and all there, they uh, they did some mighty cruel things to the prisoners whom they had. And Corn Planter would have to take some of the responsibility for that. But at the same time, you point out that he was capable of extreme acts of generosity. Well, for his people he was. He he provided money to those who needed it. Some of his uh, 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 people in in Corn Planter Town, of which he was sort of the mayor, uh, would get into trouble from time to time in Pittsburgh, and uh, he would have to bail them out of jail. Uh, he did a lot of that, and uh, he was very generous in simply permitting so many of the Senecas to live in what was called Torn Plan- Corn Planter Town, because that was his property. That uh, was given directly to him by the uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania in 1789. He had been living there in that region for about eight years already. But uh, Governor Mifflin gave him that in 1789, and... Uh, uh, he invited his uh, the Seneca people to live there, and uh, that that was extremely generous of him, of course. Was he a Christian? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, Corn Planter, uh, the Quaker missionaries came to Corn Planter Town and were there for a long time and did a lot of good things in the way of education and so on. But if you know the Quakers, uh, they did not impose their uh, religious feelings on the Indians. Uh, but uh, Pittsburgh missionary uh, missionary societies were sent dispatching uh, ministers to Corn Planter Town all the time, the Congregationalists uh, especially, and uh, the Presbyterians. Uh, and Corn Planter uh, entertained these religions a little bit, but by the time uh, he was ready to leave this life, uh, 
he had reverence only for the Great Spirit. In almost every speech that he made in his late years, it was the, the Great Spirit, the Great Spirit. He actually turned away uh, completely from uh, all of the white religions of the white man. Now, so you, you can say no, he was not a Christian. He was, um, uh, his God was the Great Spirit. Now, you have some pictures of artifacts in the book as well? I think I don't have any uh, pictures of artifacts, but I'm a great collector. I started collecting back in uh, 1979, and I have a huge collection of artifacts that I've uh, picked up from the farmer's fields here in western Pennsylvania. In fact, I've been all over the country doing this sort of thing. So I doubtless have some uh, projectiles and uh, uh, axes and uh, so on from uh, the Seneca people. Uh, what, but, are, what are the illustrations in your book? What are There's a number of them, I see. Well, there's, I think, 35, uh, Steve, and they're um, mostly of uh, historical figures who were in some way involved with corn planter. Uh, Thomas Mifflin, governor of Pennsylvania, and uh, General Sullivan, who led the expedition against Corn Planter up the Susquehanna River in 1779. Um, Henry Knox is in there. Uh, there is a portrait of Corn Planter himself as the frontispiece to the book. Uh, that was done by a man by the name of Frederick Bartoli in uh, 1796. It's the only portrait of Corn Planter, and uh, it's... Uh, it's a, when, it was done when he was about 44 years old. There's a picture of the Allegheny River and uh, some of the historical sites, but mostly they are uh, historical figures. How did he die? Well, that's quite a story. I wish we had time. I wish I could read you my account of his dying. He died in Corn Planter Town at the age of 86, his monument says at the age of about 100, but that's an error. Uh, he was 86 years old. As I noted earlier, he was much uh, disappointed in uh, what had happened uh, in his life and very much disillusioned, felt betrayed, was not sure that he had done the best that he could have for the Indian peoples. So he was... Uh, in a kind, well, I'll, I'll tell you this, Steve. He he was feeling so bad about the whole thing and was so bitter that he he declared that he wanted to be known from now on as Nonuk or Nonuk, N-O-N-U-K, which means cold and lifeless, and that's how he saw himself. And he wanted to be buried uh, in a secret place, uh, an, un an unmarked grave, is what he wanted. Well, when he died, it was at Corn Planter Town in uh, February, just four years before Washington's birthday in uh, 1836. Uh, the, uh, the people there uh, simply carried him out in a box and uh, went into his backyard and went to the edge of the backyard there where a hole had already been dug and just dumped that box in there. There was no, no ceremony. There was nobody from the United States representing the United States, nobody representing Pennsylvania, nobody even representing the Seneca Nation, no distinguished uh, Indian. It was just uh, that kind of thing, and it was a very... Uh, there was a spectator there, fortunately, who 
who described the scene, and he was much moved by it because he said the people just didn't know what to do. They walked out with this box, and they walked back uh, to the house, and that was it. The title of the book, The Hatchet and the Plow, The Life and Times of Chief Corn Planter. The author is Dr. Bill Betts. Bill, tell us how to get your book. Well, the book's available easily from, of course, from the publisher, which is iUniverse in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, but it's also available over the Internet from uh, Amazon.com and from Barnes & Noble, the Barnes & Noble website. It's uh, both paper-bound and uh, hard-bound. It's a Kindle book, and it's a Barnes & Noble notebook as well. So it's uh, easily acquired, and from the beginning, I expressed the hope to the publishers that they could put a very modest price on it, and uh, they have done that. So I think it's, uh, uh, it's uh, available at a good price, and as I said before, I think it's, uh, it's a very good read. It's an attractive book, and I'm very happy with it. Bill, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, I thank you very much, Steve. It's been all my pleasure. I enjoy talking about Corn Planner. I've gotten to know him pretty well. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.